So that's, uh, I also have this book of stories, and I thought maybe, probably, you all look like you're just bursting with questions, so uh, I think I'll read you a really short story from this book, just so you can get an idea of what my literary style is like. Um, a couple of things I'll say before I read this story. Um, since after Mathematicians Love, I wrote a novel called Post Singular, there's an idea current in science fiction that, and also there's, I mean, it's in culture. There's this idea that we're approaching a so-called singularity when computers will get to be as intelligent as we are. Uh, you know, the AI is finally going to work, even though it's never worked yet. It's going to start working. And then you'll be able to just get a machine that's as smart as you. And then you just double the clock speed, you double the RAM, and you've got a machine twice as smart as you are. And then it starts inventing better machines than you used to have, and you get this exponential growth of like, cool things happening. And that's what science fiction writers call the singularity. And uh, there is a guy, for some reason I'm blocking his name because I'm so jealous of his commercial success. He wrote a book called The Singularity is Near, Ray Kurzweil. And he even sells vitamins so on his website. Like you buy his vitamins and they'll help you live long enough for the singularity to kick in. And then the nanobots will get into your body and like roto-root out all the crud in there. And if you like, you know, the, the robots will come knock on your door and flip open the top of your head, eat your brain, and grow you a new body. And uh, forget fitness. Just take some pills and wait, you know. But uh, a bit of a scam artist. But uh, it's like science fiction writers... It's like we write about these ideas, but then when people actually believe them, we're like, are you nuts? <laughs> this is entertainment, you know? But uh, anyway, but so that, that's a whole interesting area to think about. So I had to get in on it. So I wrote a novel called Postingular. And I then have a sequel to it called Hylozoic. And in that, that's what I'm working on now. And in that, due to various complicated machinations that I won't go into, every object in the world has become alive. I mean, this thing now has a mind, and you can talk to it, and it'll talk to you. It'll say, it's okay if you drink me, I don't mind. Just recycle me, you know. Or, but, uh, and so that, that word, hylozoic, that's a real word. The Greeks used it. It means hylo is everything, and zoic is alive. And there's a variation on the word called pan-psychic, and pan-everything, and psychic having a mind. And so, um, last year, Nature magazine, it's a science magazine, a bona fide, up-and-up, real-thing science magazine, they every month, or is, I guess, is, is it a weekly? I think every week or every month, they maybe it's every month, they have an article by uh, a science fiction writer, they, a little short story, just one page long. And uh, they asked me to write one, and so I wrote a story called Panpsychism Proved, about like a story where supposedly I'm proving that everything in the world is alive and has a mind. And that's, to me, to, be, to have this complete bogus charlatanism on my part appearing in nature, you know, it's very satisfying. You know? So this story is called Panpsychism Proved. So I'll read that, and then we'll do a few questions. There's a new way for me to find out what you're thinking, said Amy. 
sitting down across from her co-worker Rick in the lab's sunny cafeteria. So this is said on the Apple campus probably, somewhere like that. She looked very excited, very pleased with herself. Okay, so Amy's talking to Rick in the cafeteria. You've hired a private eye, said Rick. I promise, Amy, we'll get together for something one of these days. I've been busy as all. He seemed uncomfortable at being cornered by her. I've invented a new technology, said Amy, the mind link. We can directly experience each other's thoughts. Let's do it now. Ah, but then you'd know way too much about me, said Rick, not wanting the conversation to turn serious. A guy like me, I'm better off as a mystery man. The real mystery is why you aren't laid off, said Amy tartly. You need friends like me, Rick, and I'm dead serious about the mind link. I do it with a special quantum jiggly-doo. There will be so many apps. Like a way to find out what my boss thinks he asked me to do? Communication, yes. The mind link will be too expensive to replace the cell phone, at least for now, but it opens up the possibility of reaching the inarticulate, the mentally ill, and yes, your boss. Emotions in a quandary? Let the mind link text debug you. So now I'm curious, said Rick. Let's see the quantum jiggly do. Amy held up two glassine envelopes, each holding a tiny pinch of black powder. I have some friends over in the heavy hardware division, and they've been giving me microgram quantities of entangled pairs of carbon atoms. Each atom in this envelope of mind link dust is entangled with an atom in this other one. The atom pair's information is coherent but locally inaccessible until the atoms get entangled with observer systems. And if you and I are the observers, that puts our minds in sync, huh, said Rick. Do you plan to snort your black dust off the cafeteria table, or what? Putting it on your tongue is fine, said Amy, sliding one of the envelopes across the tabletop. You've tested it before? First I gave it to a couple of monkeys. Bonzo watched me hiding a banana behind the door while Queenie was gone, and then I gave the dust to Bonzo and Queenie, and Queenie knew right away where the banana was. I tried it with a catatonic person, too. She and I swallowed mind-link dust together, and I was able to single out the specific thought patterns tormenting her. I walked her through the steps in slow motion. It really helped her. You were able to get medical approval for that, said Rick, looking dubious. No, I just did it. I hate red tape. And now it's time for a peer-to-peer -peer test with you, Rick. Each of us swallows our mind-link dust and makes notes on what we see in the other one's mind. You're sure the dust isn't toxic, asked Rick, flicking the envelope with a fingernail. It's only carbon, Rick, in a peculiar kind of quantum state. Come on, it'll be fun. Our minds will be like websites for each other. We can click links and click links and see what's in the depths. Like my drunk driving arrest, my membership in a doomsday cult, and the fact that I fall asleep sucking my thumb every night. You're hiding something behind all these jokes, aren't you, Rick? Don't be scared of me. I can protect you. I can bring you along on my meteoric rise to the top. Rick studied Amy for a minute. Tell you what, he said finally. If we're going to do a proper test, we shouldn't be sitting here face to face. People can read so much from each other's expressions. He gestured toward the boulder-studded lawn outside the cafeteria doors. I'll go sit down where you can't see me. Good idea, said Amy. And then pour the carbon into your hand and lick it up. It tastes like burnt toast. Amy smiled, watching Rick walk across the cafeteria. 
He was so cute and nice. If only he'd ask her out. Well, with any luck, while they were linked, she could reach into his mind and implant an obsessive loop centering around her. That was the real reason she'd chosen Rick as her partner for this mind link session, which was, if the truth be told, her tenth peer-to-peer test. She dumped the black dust into her hand and licked. Her theory and her tests showed that the mind lick effect always began in the first second after ingestion. There was no need to wait for the body's metabolism to transport the carbon to the brain. This in itself was a surprising result, indicating that a person's mind was somehow distributed throughout the body rather than sealed up inside the skull. She closed her eyes and reached out for Rick. She'd enchant him and they'd become lovers. But damn it, the mind at the other end of the link wasn't Rick's. No, the mind she'd linked to was inhuman, dense, taciturn, crystalline, serene, beautiful. Having fun yet? It was Rick standing across the table, not looking all that friendly. What? began Amy. I dumped your powder on a boulder. You're too weird for me. I gotta go. Amy walked slowly out to the patio doors to look at the friendly gray lump of granite. How nice to know that a rock had a mind. The world was cozier than she'd ever realized. She'd be okay without Rick. She had friends everywhere. So, okay, hit me with a few questions. Which book did you say was referring to, that referred to as a Harry Potter style? Oh, uh, the Harry, one of my books was reviewed in the Mercury News, and that's a book called Freck and the Elixir. And that was compared to Harry Potter, uh, for the reason that the main character is a 12-year-old boy. And he does a, a journey, it's set in the year 3003. I wrote it in 2002. It's set in 3003, and he uh, makes a journey. Earth has been, it's a sort of a biotech future for Earth. There's no more machines at all. If you want a house, you plant this really big seed, and it grows a big hollow tree, and you live in it. And the problem is that a company sort of like Microsoft has taken over the genome, and there's only 256 kinds of plants and animals on Earth. Like they've pared it down to... They've gotten rid of the biological diversity. And so Freck, his goal in the book, is the journey to the center of the galaxy where there's this sort of, oh, kind of an archive where our gen- genomic, Earth's genomic wealth is stored and he brings it back and fixes Earth, but not without, then things don't quite go right. And, you know, there's a lot of back and forth. So, yeah, that's a big adventure novel. That's the longest novel I ever wrote. That's right. Yeah, I've written one uh, novel that is not science fiction. It's called As Above, So Below, and it's a a novel about the life of the painter Peter Bruegel. Many people say Bruegel. I'm from Kentucky. I say Bruegel. But uh, that's, I guess the reason I wanted to write about him was that uh, 
Well, I was intrigued with the idea of getting out of science fiction. I thought maybe I could write a non-science fiction book and finally get the big bucks of literary success, which proved not to be the case. Uh, I think, uh, but it was a, a really beautiful book, and I was really happy to write it, and I was happy to have it come out. And there are some people that really loved it. Um, and when I was about 13, I went to visit my grandmother in Germany. Uh, I went to a boarding school there for a year. And uh, she had this book of the paintings of Peter Bruegel. And I was just fascinated by them. They were, uh, in a way, I was already, as I mentioned, I was reading science fiction at that young age, 12, 13. And the, some of his earlier pictures were sort of, in a way, science fictional. There was just all this weird stuff going on. And also, I loved Mad Magazine. And there's that thing about the, the, just all these things being going on in the picture, so many things to look at. And then in later years, uh, Bruegel's later paintings are just very, very beautiful. And they're not crowded with stuff anymore. Uh, there's just a few figures, but it's just, there's this sort of almost cosmic divine light shining through the pictures. And so I wanted, and it turned out very little's known about his life. Uh, there's his biography was written about a hundred years after he's dead, and it's only about a page long. And so I thought it'd be fun to write a novel about his life. And the technique I used, I used sort of a transreal approach, or reverse transreal, in that I looked at his pictures and supposed that the pictures were in some way depictions of what was going on in his life during the year when he painted them. And I figured out, I did a certain amount of scholarship and got a pretty reason, some of it's debatable, but I came up with what seemed to me a workable chronology of the paintings. And then I did 16 chapters and basically each one was in some way inspired by one of his paintings. Either what's the scene in that chapter is the scene depicted in that painting, like the peasant wedding, so there's a peasant wedding, or there's a, the carnival in Lent, uh, street fair, there's a chapter like that. But then there's another one, there's like the, the adoration of the Magi, where the Magi are looking at Jesus, and somebody's whispering in Joseph's ear, that's not your baby. This was, <laughs> that was like, in the Middle Ages, they were very, they liked that kind of humor. And so, then aside a chapter where Bruegel has a, a son, and then He's concerned that his wife uh, had had a lover and that maybe this isn't actually his child. And so there are different ways in which I, I turned the pictures into the chapters. And I really liked doing that. And I actually had always sort of wanted to write a novel about the painter Hieronymus Bosch. And uh, actually, I think what I'm going to do instead, in some ways, oddly enough, Bosch's life Somehow it doesn't seem as interesting as Bruegel's life, the, the little bit of research that I've done. Um, but what I'm going to do in this book I'm writing now, uh, Hylozoic, I'm going to have some guys. In science fiction, you, whatever, you want it, you've got it. Okay? I need some guys to go to 14, 1490 when Bosch was painting. There's a way. I already figured it out. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's a lot easier than doing mathematics. Uh, or even computer science. But uh, so there, I'm going to have a chapter where a guy goes back and becomes his assistant and hangs out with him. So I'm, I'll be getting sort of a, a miniature version of his life there. But uh, I probably will stay with science fiction. Uh, maybe another day, another historical novel. But usually, 
somehow, if somebody is a science fiction writer, like Philip K. Dick, and then sometimes he would write books that weren't science fiction, and you're reading the book, and you're always like waiting, well, come on, Phil, you know, where's the aliens, you know, where's the robots, why are you holding out on us, you know, so you sort of, in a way, you get yourself typecast, and it's kind of hard to break out of that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. A question: What do I think of Stephen Wolfram's book, A New Kind of Science? Actually, I'm one of the very few totally committed Wolframites in the mathematical community. I, I uh, worship would not be the word I would use, but. I really like Stephen Wolfram's work, and I like him as a person. I met him in the 1980s, actually. Uh, he he converted me on the spot. I had lunch with him at the Institute for Advanced Study, and when I got up from that table, I was a Wolframite. <laughs> sort of like John the Baptist, you know, he got in on the ground floor. And uh, But then, uh, so I wrote, actually, a book. When I retired from San Jose State, I thought, look, I've been teaching computer science for 20 years. I've learned all this stuff. What does it mean? You know, what, what, is, what is the meaning? What is the deeper meaning of computers? I watched the, the computer revolution happen. I've surfed the wave. What was it about? What does it mean? What is, what is computation? And so I wrote a book about that, and it's to some extent from a, a Wolfram point of view. And the book's called The Life Box, The Seashell, and The Soul. And it's sort of a a strange title. For that book, I got a new agent, so he convinced me I should use... He said, whatever you do, don't use the word computer in the title. Everybody's mad at computers because they lost a lot of money in the dot-com bubble. So, uh, the, the life box, the seashell, and the soul, it's sort of a dialectic triad. Uh, the life box being this idea that you could make a sort of this extremely good blog that would be such a good model of your personality that even when you're dead, you know, it would keep writing itself and people would read it, you know. So you can just sort of fade away. It's sort of like the old idea of the robots eating your brain and making a copy of you in a kinder, gentler, more uh, modern Web 2.0 kind of form. But, uh, and so that's the life box. And the soul, well, that's, everybody says, well, you can build a computer model of me, but it's not going to have soul. You know, I've got soul. I, we all know what it is. We've got this fleck flame inside ourselves, the cosmic I am, and that's not going to be captured by any computation. And then the synthesis is the idea, there's this certain kind of seashell that Stephen Wolfram is very fond of called the cone shell, and that has a pattern on it that is a, an example of a gnarly computation, a computation that's so complicated and rich that you think, well, maybe this could actually, it may be if you were a computation like this, you might actually think you had a soul. So maybe it's not out of the question. And so, yeah, so that's certainly, yeah, I'm very much into Wolfram. Yeah? In your fiction world, are they going to be printing books? Is, what's the question? In the, in the fiction, uh -huh. in the world, what is the future for the books? Uh, that's a tough question. He, he asked me, what's the future of the book, the printed book, in the future? And uh, I think it's going to hang around for a while. Uh, there, every now and then, I mean, people say people are going to start reading electronic books. 
And uh, that so far it, it isn't happening. And it's not exactly that you don't like reading on your computer, because a lot of people you spend your whole day reading on your computer. But somehow the things you read on your computer, you never read long things on your computer. Like you, you break it up, you read a little email, you read a little web, you read a little this, you read a little of that. And somehow nobody ever reads anything long on their computer. And also the whole idea of digital storage, it's, well there's a joke among computer people, digital storage lasts forever or seven years, whichever comes first. Which, <laughs> and you know, you've seen so many digital storages come and go. I mean, what good is a floppy disk anymore? It might as well be written on a, in Sanskrit, on a, on a lambskin, you know? That's, you're not equally likely to, to be able to read a big floppy disk anymore. So, uh, there's something about books that is, is very appealing. They're, I don't know. I, I think they'll be around for uh, the foreseeable future. And sometimes people talk about the demise of literacy, but they are, in fact, printing and selling more books than ever. It's uh, there's just this sense that there's a lot of other things going on. There's, uh, you know, video games, the web. Maybe young people don't read as much as they used to, but people do still read an awful lot. So, uh, actually, in this, this novel, Post Singular, I did push it. To, I had this idea of people becoming... I decided with there being like a, this sort of internet that you can pick up with your brain. And so you, everybody has access to the web all the time in their head. And endless amounts of memory offline. And then I was thinking, what kind of novel would I write then? If I could just basically save my thoughts and build up this enormous thing. And so I coined the word meta-novel for these things that they're creating. And uh, that's something I've been sort of playing with, thinking about what, what you would do if you could make... It's sort of like before the traders showed up in the Pacific Northwest with axes, the Native Americans there were making totems, but they were like this big. They'd carve these little totem things out of like black rock. And then suddenly they got metal axes and they were making these you know, 40, 50 foot high totem poles. And it's sort of like, I could imagine something like that could happen to literature, where instead of making something this big, if suddenly everybody's brain sort of got amplified thanks to the singularity, you'd be making, you know, a book that was, you know, 10,000 pages long, and it was full of movies and sound and pictures, and uh, that would be sort of cool to imagine what people could do with that. It brings to mind at Fahrenheit 451, we had the telly on the wall, mm -hmm. come home and just continue from the day before, the walls would speak to you all the time, and that would be your life. Yes. I just listened to the book on tape, like four or five months, got a whole different perspective on it. That's interesting, to listen to Fahrenheit 451 on tape. Yeah. Yeah, that's sort of almost like an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I also listened to uh, Wells, War of the Worlds. Uh -huh. It gave me a whole perspective of how he was really um, channeling World War I to come. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. So that was a pretty good movie, too, uh, War of the Worlds. My books would be good movies. Yes, yes. Tell it to Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. They were going to make a movie. Well, never mind. Well, the deals come and go. And sometimes I'll get some money for a few years for an option. 
And eventually, the thing is, they have to make every one of Philip K. Dick's stories into a movie first. And Phil wrote 748 stories. So, you know, I, I'm in line, but it's around 2070, they're going to dig around, you know. I want to know more about the Transrio. When you went to the South Pacific, to Tonga, yeah. a lot of the underwater, uh, what would you consider that part of your Well, yeah, you're asking about transrealism and scuba diving. Um, that's a, a hobby I took up. I think it was around when I was 45, my wife Sylvia gave me scuba lessons for my birthday. And uh, that's something, I like, I like scuba diving. It gives you an excuse to go somewhere that's really warm. You can scuba dive in Monterey Bay, but somehow I don't find myself doing that very often. Because you have to wear, it's so cold that you have to wear a really, really thick rubber wetsuit. And then you have to wear about 70 pounds of lead weight so you don't float on the top like a cork. And so then you're in the water and you can hardly move. It's, uh, but it's certainly, it's a great, uh, and I'm going to stop after this question, I think, because I think we've used up just about enough time. It is a great objective correlative for being in another dimension or being in outer space to be scuba diving because it's this totally different environment. And that's, I often end up, when I need to fall back on somebody doing something weird in another dimension or, or something like that, then I often fall back on descriptions of scuba diving. Because you see really great, gnarly-looking creatures there, like cuttlefish. <laughs> you can get some great cuttlefish over at the Kabul. Okay, yeah, but I think uh, we've done just about an hour now, so maybe that's enough.